Well, when I was a kid, about eight, nine, 10 years old, I would every single Christmas ask for this one specific thing. Every single year, I would ask for a horse. I always love horses, I always wanted a horse, and so I would ask my parents every year, I want a horse. And they would try to explain to me like, hey, we don't really have room for the horse, but, but I would always ask it, and every single year, uh, this is what I would get. Not this exact horse, but I would get a, a fake horse. My parents would be like, you got your horse. Do you like it? No, I don't like it. I want a real horse. And I just would keep asking them for this horse and keep asking them. And finally, they would explain it to me. Hey, we live on a, a, a half an acre. That's not enough room for a horse. I'm like, sure it is. Like, there's plenty of room. We have a dog pen outside. He can hang out in there. That'll be fine. Then they explained to me, we don't have the money to feed a horse. Spe specifically, you don't have the money to feed a horse or to take care of it. They're expensive. And I was like, sure I do. Now looking back, I didn't have enough money to feed a goldfish, let alone a horse. But I just asked every single year, this is what I wanted for Christmas. I wanted a horse. Now, looking back, I did not understand the depth behind the request. I didn't understand everything that went along with what I was asking for. About that same time, my dad would take me and my older brother, Matthew, to this place called Turner's Honda. And this place had like all the coolest things that you could want. They had like quads, they had dirt bikes, they had motorbikes, they had jet skis, they had it all. It was awesome. And so when we would go in there, my brother and I would get on one of these dirt bikes, and we'd get on a quad, and we were tending to drive around, and we would ask my dad, Dad, will you buy us this? And he'd be like, no, we don't have money for that. And we're looking at the tag. It's only $12,000. Of course you can afford this. Like, you can buy it. And he's like, no, we don't have the money. And then my brother and I figured out this little life hack for you. You guys ready for this, for all your, your needs? We always would tell our dad, hey, you can just write a check for it, and it'll be fine because that's free money, right? And we would have got it for like 30 days, and then the bank would have came and taken it. But once again, we did not understand the request, the depth behind the request. We were asking for these things, and maybe it was, it was, it was in good spirit. It was, it was nothing bad behind the request. We didn't really understand everything in which we were asking. And today in our text, and that's what we see with James and with John. They ask this request of Jesus, and they don't get it. They don't understand the depth. They don't understand everything that goes behind the request that they are asking. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what's behind the question that they're asking. We're not actually going to study the question in depth, and that's on purpose, because next week there's another question that is asked from a guy called Bartimaeus. We're going to put those two requests together. We're going to study them side by side. But today we're going to study the depth behind what they're asking for and what they're going to want from Jesus. And so the story gets set up this way in Mark 10, pick up in verse 33, or 32 through 34. This is what the story says. Then they were on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was happening to him. Listen, he said, I am going up to, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. 
And so what we see is it's starting out as they were on their way to Jerusalem. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember, in the scriptures, this is not just the location, but the appointment. Jesus is on his way to the cross. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem where he will be handed over to to the authorities. He will be killed. And so Jesus is saying, hey, that time is coming. We are almost there. And one of the little details that we see here, though, it says Jesus was walking ahead of them. What ends up happening is is Jesus now has abandoned his his role as a rabbi, where a rabbi would have walked among the people, walked alongside, had the people following alongside them. Jesus is now leading the party. Jesus is now leading the group of people to Jerusalem. He is walking a beeline to the cross. He is heading that way, and the people are following him. And as we read that, maybe images of, or of Hebrews 12 too come up into your mind, where Jesus, for the, the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. Like, that's the picture here. Jesus is heading to the cross, and there is something in this moment that is changing in them. That it says the disciples are filled with awe. It says the other crowds around them are full of fear. The intensity of Jesus, something has changed in this moment. The temperature in the room has begun to rise, and they know something is about to change. And then Jesus goes and he pulls his 12 buddies aside and he tells them, hey guys, this is, this is almost the end. We are heading to Jerusalem. He lays out, he predicts its death. This is the third time in Mark's gospel, the final time that Mark records Jesus predicting his death. Since it's the third time, we're not going to really study it in depth. But what I want us to understand is this is actually of Mark's three gospels. This is the most detailed prediction. This is, the, this is where we get the most details as we look at this. Jesus lays out four verbs that is going to happen to them, the, to him. The first three are brand new. He hasn't shared these before. He says this. He is going, they are going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And here's what we find is every single one of those verbs, mock, flog, spit on, kill They're actually in Isaiah 52 and 53 of the suffering servant. So in this moment, Jesus is very explicitly saying, hey, guys, that servant that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 52 and 53, that suffering Messiah, that suffering servant, that's me. I am him. And so Jesus is the servant Messiah on a sacrificial mission. Jesus is the suffering servant, the servant Messiah on a sacrificial mission, on his way to the cross. But notice that word in verse 34, probably the most, one of the most powerful in all the Bible, the word but. They're going to kill him, but. Three days later, he is going to rise from the dead. Yes, Jesus is going to suffer. He is going to die but he is not going to stay dead. Jesus is not just the servant suffering Messiah. He is the conquering king who is going to come on the sacrificial mission to to win, to win us back, to to pay the price for our sin, to, to defeat sin and death once and for all. And so Jesus lays all of that out. And then here's what we find in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him, teacher, They said, we want you to do us a favor. 
And that statement, we want you to do us a favor, is very telling. Because literally translated, this is, Jesus, do for us whatever we want. This is what they're asking him. Jesus, do for us whatever you want, whatever we want. And it's really easy to be like, bad, bad James, bad John. Anyone else ever did that? Jesus, God, will you do for me what I want? Do what I desire me to do? Do for me whatever I want? Has anyone ever done that? Not really concerned about what Jesus wants for us, but more just like, do for me what I want. And sure, we could pick on James and John, but I've been there. I've done the same thing. I've asked Jesus for things. I've asked him to do what I wanted him to do without really much intention of doing what he wanted. Every once in a while, uh, when I'm reading a book or, or watching, a, watching a movie, there'll be one of these moments. It's usually like in an intense show or an intense book, like a, a mystery book or a spy book or something like that, where, where somebody will come to a person and they'll give them a proposition. They'll say, hey, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be. And then they'll ask, well, okay, what else does this entail? And then there'll be this tiny little statement, well, you have to say yes before I can give you more detail. And every single time that happens, it's always something really sketchy, something really dangerous, something they probably don't want to get involved in before they say yes. And Jesus, man, he's far too smart for this. Like, he, he's not going to get, Peter and John aren't catching him off guard. And Jesus replies in verse 36 and 37, what is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit on the place of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. So at least they get it right, the glorious throne part. At least they get that part right. Unfortunately, when we look at that idea, that phrase, this is not a, a, a heavenly throne. This is not a, a kingdom of God kind of throne. This glorious throne that they are asking for, they are asking Jesus for, is, is a political throne. Somehow, some way, they still think Jesus is going to be this political leader. Somehow, they still think Jesus has these aspirations that he's going to walk into Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to make Israel great again. And that somehow, that's, this is still what they're thinking. And then... It's just not. Like, we know the end of the story. That's not what Jesus' plan is. But they asked for a place on his right and on his left. Interestingly, the only place in Mark's gospel that anyone is mentioned to be on the right and the left of Jesus is in Mark chapter 15 with the rebels that are being crucified next to Jesus. That's the only time we see in the gospel of Mark when somebody is on Jesus' right and on Jesus' left when they are dying beside him. And in a real way, that's what Peter, or that's what James and John are asking for. But they don't even know it. They're asking Jesus to die alongside him. They don't have a clue that that's what they're asking for. So if you want to be on the right and left of Jesus, it's through, it's through death. And Jesus, he's about to clue them in on a bit of this information. He's about to let them know, hey, this is exactly what you're asking for. Pick up in verse 38 through 40. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? 
Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right and on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones that he has chosen. I think it's really interesting that Jesus chooses the word baptized or baptism to refer to the suffering that we are going to take place in. I think it's really significant. I think Jesus is doing a little bit of a wordplay for us here. And here's the idea I think Jesus is setting up. is When you are baptized into relationship with Jesus, you are also baptized into suffering like Jesus. When we are baptized in relationship with God, with, in relationship with Jesus, we are also stepping into, being baptized into, immersed into, suffering just like him. There's no way around it. This is the cost of discipleship. And the reality is, like, that really seems to be against what our world tends to believe. Or this is against what our world and the way we function as a whole few months back, we had some friends who, who bought a shed for their garden. And they go and they build this, this people, the company comes and they build this shed and they set it all up in their garden. But the company also gave this guarantee. Hey, if you don't like the shed, you don't have to keep it. So they go, take five, six hours, get the shed built in their garden. Our friends are, are like, nope, we don't want it. And so the people come back the very next day, spend five or six hours taking the shed down, driving off. I didn't know you could do that with a shed, but apparently you can. A few months back, I was shopping in Harvey Norman. I, I don't make that a normal occurrence, but I was, I was there. And, and so Blake and I were actually there, and I was looking for a pair of earphones for Tiffany. And I don't know if you know this about Tiffany, like she's a little bit smaller than, than I am. And so I was looking for some headphones for her and some of the ones that you like insert into your ear. And, and so I found a pair and this is Harvey Norman, so naturally they were expensive, but I was thinking maybe they could work. And, and so I go up to the, to the till, get ready to check out. And I just asked the lady, hey, what is your return policy on these headphones? Because my wife, she's, she's kind of small. I don't know if they're gonna fit. And she tells me, hey, they are actually a hygienic issue. And so if you open them, you are not allowed to return them. So I said, no thanks, not going to buy these. Because here's the thing, guys. Like, we operate in this side of the world, right? Like, if we can return it, we're fine. If not, maybe we're a little questionable about it. But here's Jesus saying, you want to be baptized with me? You're going to be baptized into suffering. Like, this is this idea of, like, oh, I don't like it, I'll just give it away. Like, Jesus doesn't allow that to be true for us. This isn't in, like, the fine print. You don't have to read nine pages of terms and conditions before you find Jesus saying this. Like, this is in big, bold letters. Jesus wants to make sure that we understand if we are going to get into relationship with him, it is going to be accompanied by suffering. In fact, if we flip back to our passage last week in Mark 10, verse 28 through 30, there's a connection from this passage to our passage this week. Verse 28, Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property. 
Oh yeah, along with persecution. Now, don't miss that, along with persecution. That's the connection to our passage. Because what is happening here is James and John, they are asking Jesus, hey, we want to be your closest associates. What they think, this is, this, they think this is a promotion. But the reality is, this isn't a promotion, this is persecution. And I think maybe sometimes, like, we would just say, okay, Jesus, we're fine. with. Can we just have the hundred times return on houses or family or property or friends? And you keep the persecution part to yourself, but can we just have that hundred times return on this thing? And it doesn't work that way. Because when we're baptized into relationship with Jesus, we are baptized into his suffering. There's no way around it. But here's what I believe with everything in me that Jesus is worth it every single time. So back to our passage, Jesus asked the question, are you able to drink the cup of suffering that I have to drink? And James and John, they agree. They say, yeah, we can drink from this cup. We can deal with this suffering. They agree to this and notice in our story, Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus doesn't correct them. With Peter, later in the, the upper room, when Peter says, Jesus, I would die for you before I denied you, Jesus is like, no, bro, you're actually not going to do that. Actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. This time, James and John say, yes, we can drink this cup. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. You were going to drink this cup. And like, let's give John a little credit. Like, he is the only one of the 12 disciples who was there when Jesus is crucified. He's the one who follows Jesus around from trials, and he is there, albeit from a distance. But let's give John a little bit of credit here. Jesus doesn't correct these lads. He says, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to drink this bitter cup of suffering. In fact, as we follow the story, James is the very first of the 12 disciples to be martyred for his faith. Acts chapter 12 from Agrippa I executes James for his faith. John he is the only one of the disciples who isn't or executed for his faith. He just gets to be sent into exile on an island of Patmos. And so they both, they suffer for being a follower of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 41. When the other ten heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were indignant. And what's sad about this moment is they are not indignant about the request that Peter or that James and John have made. They're indignant that James and John beat them to the question. They're indignant that James and John beat them to the punch. That's what they're upset about. Like, this is not the most proud moment for the disciples, right? And this is not like this righteous indignation that we talked about last week when, when Jesus gets mad for the disciples sending the children away. Like, this is greed. This is they're upset because they are, they've been beat out, that they wanted those positions, and James and, James and John asked for them first. And here's like this moment, like Jesus says, I am going to be mocked. I am going to be spit on. I am going to be flogged. I am going to be killed. And the disciples, they are, they're mad. They're frustrated. They're irate. They're, they're indignant. Whatever other word you want to put there, they're just they're beyond themselves. Not that Jesus is going to deal with all of that, but because James and John beat them to asking for the places of power and position. 
Not the proudest moment from the disciples. In reality, man, Jesus is far, far more patient with these lads than I would be. And that's really good news if you're anything like me. Because Jesus has been far more patient with me than I deserve. He's far more patient with these guys than they deserve. He's far more patient with us than we deserve. Verse 30, 42 through 44, here's what Jesus says. He calls them together and said, You know, the rulers of this world lorded over their people, and the officials flaunt their authority of those around them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave to everyone else. So just so we don't miss it, the two things that Jesus calls us to be are servants and slaves. That's the call. Servants and slaves. And if somebody goes to a job fair and is like, hey, I'm looking for servants and slaves here. I don't know if many of us are going to throw up our hands and be like, that sounds good to me. Because this idea of servant, this isn't like someone who is serving you food at a restaurant. No, the idea of servant here is the lowest servant in a house who would be in charge of washing the feet of everyone who came in. And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, this is who you are meant to be. Over the last few weeks in my house, there's been a couple of tiny little humans who have had a, a hard time remembering their manners. And they've been going through the stage where they've just been like, not really asking us for things. They've just been like, I want water. I want this. Get me that. Get me this. And constantly I'm like, girls, you need to use your manners. And the other week I got really frustrated with this and I looked at them and I was like, girls, mommy and I, we are not your slaves. We are not your servants. The irony of that this week was not lost on me. I was upset. I was frustrated that they were treating me like a slave and treating me like a servant. And here's Jesus saying, hey, Here's the, here's the place that you're going to be. This is what I'm calling you to. Sure, my kids need to have better manners, of course. But still, I was upset because that was the position that I felt like I was taking. That was upset because that's what I felt like I was being treated like. And Jesus says in verse 42, he talks about the rulers of this world. He says, you know, you know. What it's indicating here is like, th this is common knowledge. Like everyone around knows the way that the rulers of this world lord over their authority. Everyone knows, like this isn't breaking news. Jesus isn't giving this revolutionary teaching. Jesus isn't pointing his finger at something that no one understood. No, people just knew that the rulers of the world in the first century would lord their authority over people. It's no different than 21st century, if we're honest. But like people just knew that was the case. And man, that just got me thinking this week. What if that was the, in, in reverse, what if that was the case of us as followers of Jesus? What if people just knew when they encountered a follower of Jesus that that was going to be a person that was going to humble themselves and serve? What if every single person knew when they came in contact with me, when they came in contact with you, that you were going to rush to the back of the line, that you were going to throw your hand up saying, I'm, I'll volunteer, I'll do that thing that no one else wants to do. What if everyone just knew 
that as Jesus' followers, that we were people who put others above ourselves and loved people more than we loved our own self. What if they just knew that? Man, I think the world would look a whole lot more like heaven. I think people would see Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say at the end of verse 30, or 44, he says, not only are you going to be a servant, but you have to be a slave to everyone else. A slave to everyone else. And I'll be honest, I wish Jesus didn't say that part. I wish Jesus didn't say everyone else. Can you just think for me, just a second, think with me? Who is it in your life that you don't want to be a slave to? Who is it in your life that you would flat out refuse to be a slave to? Maybe it's not just one person. Maybe it's a lot of people. Who is it that you would refuse? Who is that one person, though? Try to pick that one person in your mind of who it is that you would hate, you would rather die than be a slave to. Let's, let's not even make it so cringy. Even just serve. Who is that one person that you don't even want to serve? And Jesus is saying, yeah, even them. Be a slave to even them. I'll be honest, I don't like feeling like a slave and a servant to my children, but that's one thing. It's a whole other thing if it's someone that I can't stand, right? And Jesus is saying, even that person, you are to be a slave to everyone else. And I just want to remind you, Jesus has called together his 12 disciples. There's a guy in the huddle who's about to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus is still saying, we're going to serve. We're going to be a slave to everyone else. Judas is still in the circle. And here's Jesus saying, this is what we're going to be about. So let's just read this again. Verse 34, or 43 and 44. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave to everyone else. So as we lead people, if serving people is, is too much for you, if serving people is above you, then leading people is beneath you. And Jesus is saying, this is what we are going to do. Don't miss this phrase, though. He says at the very beginning, but among you, it will be different. Why? Why is it going to be different? Why is it going to be different among these guys? Because we have been with Jesus. And here's what I want you guys to see. As we look at this passage in the Greek, these aren't commands. Jesus isn't commanding us to be a servant. Jesus isn't commanding us to be a slave. No, the idea here is this is a natural overflow of being in relationship with Jesus. This is just what we are going to be when we are followers of Jesus. This isn't as much of a command as it is an expectation. Because we have been with Jesus, being a servant, being a slave, putting ourselves last, putting other people first. This is our natural overflow. Can I just ask you, is that your natural overflow? Is that your default position to be a servant, to be a slave? Is this what is flowing from you? Because when we have been in the presence of Jesus... Our lives are different. When we have been in the presence of Jesus, our lives, man, they just, they're just different. 
You guys have heard us talk a lot at church about spiritual disciplines. You'll even hear this mantra from time to time. As followers of Jesus, we want to be with Jesus. We want to be like Jesus, and we want to do what Jesus did. This is why. Because when we are in relationship with him, we are been in his presence, our lives begin to change, and they start to look different. And so Jesus is saying, you are going to take the position of a servant. You're going to take the position of a slave. And so just to illustrate this, a little bit farther. In the first century Roman world in which Jesus is in, there would have been this social ladder that everyone would have known like where you were on that ladder would determine your relevance or your importance. We don't have anything like that these days, but in the first century, there was this social hierarchy, right? And so this was the, this was the social ladder. At the very top of the ladder is Caesar. So the most powerful man in all of Rome, probably the most powerful man in the world, he sits on the top rung of the ladder. The next rung of the ladder is the Senate. And they are 600 of the most powerful men in the world because they control all of the money. Under them are the the equestrians. So the equestrians, they made their money from buying and selling horses. They are exceptionally wealthy people. Under the equestrians are the decurrent. And the decurrent, they are just the, the elite, like the royals or people like that, the one that you want to invite to all the parties, like that's, that's them. And so up to this point, this is 2% of the, of the society. The next rung of the ladder is a citizen. And Roman citizens, they had rights, they could vote, they could own property. If you read through the book of Acts, you read through some of Paul's letter, being a Roman citizen, he, he uses that sometimes to be like, you have to give me like a proper trial. And so they have legal rights. Under a citizen is a freedman. A freedman. And the name is exactly what you think. They're free, but they don't have rights. They can't own property. They can't vote. And the very lowest rung on the ladder is a slave. The only thing that a slave could do was obey. That was their only rights, was they had the right to obey their masters. The reason I want to bring this up is because if you feel like what Jesus is saying is countercultural to our world, it's the same thing in the first century. Everybody believed that this was where this ladder would determine your importance. Everyone would have known that. And so when Jesus is saying, be a slave, be a servant, it went against everything that we would have known to be true. In fact, Plato, the Greek philosopher, here's what he says. He says, how can a man be happy if he is a slave to anyone at all? And Jesus is saying that it's through submission and obedience that you find joy. The Roman world, they didn't view obedience and submission as a virtue. They, they viewed it as a tragedy. And then here, come, here comes Jesus saying, this is what you're going to be doing. This is what you're going to be about. And here's the fascinating thing. As we look at the bottom rung of the ladder, slaves... Here's the reality about Jesus is Jesus takes the level below the bottom rung. Because as we read through Roman law and Roman history, a slave could not be crucified. Only a dishonorable slave could be crucified. So Jesus doesn't just take the lowest rung of the ladder. He takes the rung below the lowest rung. He takes the lowest spot of that. And so, man, what does this look like? In our lives, like, okay, that was Jesus, that was the first century. What does this look like to be a slave to all, to be a servant to all people in our world today? 
For me, I got a picture of this about 10 years ago with my family. So unfortunately, about 10 years ago, my grandma, who had dementia, it started to get a lot, a lot worse. And, and what ended up happening is like they just realized like she's going to need full-time care, 24 hours a day care. And unfortunately, my parents had just lost their home to a hurricane. It was wiped out. It's flooded. And so my parents didn't have a home. My grandma needed someone to live with her to help take care of her. And so they're like, well, this is, we'll kill two birds with one stone. Your parents get a house. Grandma gets care. And so they moved in with my grandma. And so for four years, I watched as my parents would get up in the middle of the night to change my grandma's nappy or to strip and change her bed. I watched as, as they would fix every meal for her. My grandma, unfortunately, she had like a throat issue, and so she couldn't swallow things very well, so they had to cut things up like you would a child. Every single bite of every single piece of her food, they would cut it up for. I watched as my brother and sister set their alarm on their phone for 90 minutes every single day to walk grandma to the bathroom. I watched with tears in my eyes as my brother and sister would help her and take care of her even when she forgot their names. I watched them for years, answering the same question over and over and over again. Because that's what a follower of Jesus does. And I let my parents know I was telling the story. I don't think they were very happy about it because it's not why they were doing it. But for me, that showed me this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a servant. Loving someone who can do nothing in your turn, can do nothing for you. I've shared this, this letter with some of you before, but there is a dad with MS who wrote a letter to his son on Valentine's Day, and this is what he had written. He said, a date night means that your mom has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house into the garage, take the pedals off my wheelchair, stand me up, turn me around, sit me down in the seat, twist me around so that I'll be comfortable, fold up the wheelchair, put it in the trunk, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, then get out of the car, close the garage door, get back into the car, and drive to the restaurant. Then she gets me out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the door, wheels me into the restaurant, takes the pedals off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit there and have dinner, which means she feeds me one bite at a time, throughout the entire meal. When it's over, she pays the bill, pushes me out to the car again, and in reverse does the same tedious routine. And when we're, when we're all finished and we're back into the house, she'll look at me and say, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. And I never know quite what to say. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be a servant? And that's it. That's what it looks like to be a servant. This is what Jesus is calling us to, is we serve and we love, even if the person we are serving and loving can do nothing for us in return. And the greatest, the ultimate picture of servant leadership was the Son of Man coming, being born and laid in a manger, giving his life on a cross to save every single one of us, what I love about Jesus is Jesus doesn't just say, hey, guys, this is how you should live life. I'm going to go live a life of royalty. It's not what Jesus does. No, read verse 35, or 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to find Jesus' mission statement? This is it. Along with probably Mark 2, 17. Like this, this is what Jesus is about. He is not coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to pay the price for our sins so that we can be bought back. So what I want to do, I want to return back to this cup of suffering that Jesus refers to when he talks about, are you able to drink this cup of suffering that, that I have, that, I can, that I'm going to drink from? Here's what's interesting. As we read through that word, we study that word cup throughout Scripture, what we find is for the mostly, that cup is used like Jesus uses it here. A cup is, is wrath, this idea of punishment and, and, and a negative thing. But every once in a while, that word is used in a positive way. One way, one time in particular is in, in, in Psalm, 30, or Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23 verse 5 says this, and my cup overflows with blessing. And so here's what we, that's what we see for, for our lives. Since Jesus' cup overflowed with suffering, our cup can overflow with blessing. Because Jesus was willing to suffer and die the death that every single one of us deserved. Our lives, we can receive the blessings of God. Our cups can overflow with blessing because he gave his life as a ransom for many. And when we read that word many, it, it's not just this idea of just a good few people. That idea of many is meant to be this contrast between one person dying for the many. So Jesus died the price for our sin so that many did not have to, so that we don't have to. So Jesus goes and he pays the price. He drinks the cup of suffering so that we can receive a cup of blessing so that we can be in his presence once and for all, so that we can be with him for eternity. And so when Jesus goes and he shares this is what his life is going to be, what we have to acknowledge is as followers of Jesus, our lives, we cannot, our death will not be as a ransom for many. Like we can't give up our lives as a punishment for sin for the ransom of many like Jesus did. However, we can't replicate Jesus' death, but we should replicate his life. We can't do the, thing, the same thing in our death as Jesus did. We can't live, we can't die and give our life as a ransom for many, but you know what we can do? We can give our lives in service to many. We can give our lives and slavery to many. We might not be able to achieve all the things that Jesus achieved in his death, but in his life, we can do the same thing. We can give our lives in service to people. We can give our lives under the lordship of Jesus and live for him. And here's, here's the fact. is the way of Jesus in this text. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering, the way of servanthood, and the way of slavery. But that is where we find life. That is where we find the life that we have always wanted, in relationship with God. It seems paradoxical. It seems like in slavery and in service and in, in suffering, we would, we would have less life. But Jesus is saying that is where you get more life. That is where you find true life. 
And in Jesus' suffering, in Jesus' death, we find lasting life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you took the lowest rung of the ladder for us. That you didn't just say that you were going to be some high and mighty dictator or ruler telling us how we should live, why you lived a different way. But God, you gave your life for us. God, I'm just reminded of just throughout the scripture how everything Jesus gave up for us, for a life of service, a life of slavery. He chose, willingly chose to drink the cup of suffering. When he's in the garden, he asks, is there any other way? And God says no, and Jesus drinks the cup anyway because he loves us. And Lord, as your followers, in, in response to that, and God, help us to live the life that you lived. God, help our lives to be characterized by service to one another, be slavery, to, to giving, the, giving the other people the benefit of the doubt, to racing to the back of the line, to volunteering to serve in a way that shows people who you are. Help us to lay down our, our lives, our own to our own desires, our selfish ambitions, whatever they may be, and lay it down for you. God, we're going to sing in just a few minutes that our wealth is in the cross, that that's where our value comes from, what you did for us on the cross. And Lord, I just pray that we will live as people of the kingdom, the way of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray.